This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se. Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Hi, and welcome to Next Up Gothenburg. I'm Lieke, and I'm here with uh, Morgan, Morgan from the US. And we are this week going to talk about the European Union and about the, a little bit about the history but the advantages and disadvantages of the European Union and also what's the future of the EU going to look like. Morgan is a political science student and um, yeah, he will introduce himself for you guys now. Yes, hello, I'm Morgan from the US. That is my last name from the US. Um, (laughs) I am a double degree master's student uh, at the universities of Constance, Germany and Gothenburg, Sweden. Um, not being an EU citizen myself, but being uh, very interested in European politics and the development of the EU, I'm happy to be here. Exactly. Yeah, I thought it was uh, interesting to maybe get a different perspective on the EU from uh, somebody who doesn't even live in it. And uh, I myself, I don't really have a lot of knowledge about the EU or um, I'm not really, I mean, I'm not studying political science, so I don't have that much facts about it and Morgan uh, thinks about these things every day all day exactly and (laughs) will explain uh, some quite important and yeah uh, things and we'll uh, we will learn something this week actually which is nice but uh, first I'm gonna start you off with a song and then after this we will talk about what is the EU actually hey K103 this is Tootie from Dead Moon Keep on a rockin', babies. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Next Up Gothenburg. I'm Lieke, and I'm here with Morgan, and he's gonna. We're talking about the European Union, and he's gonna hopefully make much clearer how what the European Union actually is and uh, how it started. Hmm. Yeah, this is a really, really good question. Very timely question. It seems that a lot of the issues that we face nowadays regarding doubt in the EU's. Uh, grounded in sort of uncertainty about what it is, why it's important, what it does. People feel maybe disillusioned or confused about what those bureaucrats in Brussels are doing. Um, The story starts at the end of the Second World War. Um, We all know how ravaging and catastrophic the Second World War was. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a proposal made by or discussion by many European leaders at the time One of the most notable was Winston Churchill, who proposed a, quote, United States of Europe as a way of maybe potentially ensuring peace in post-war Europe. Um, And this is grounded in the idea that if we integrate either economically or we, you know, try to form some some sort of identity about the values and principles of what it means to be European, that there's a sense of cohesion and solidarity and community that we can develop and then we can avoid uh, future conflict. And so it was it was an incremental process. It started with the the idea that we integrate the markets in coal and steel. This yeah. is extremely important for yeah, exactly. yeah go ahead. That's, that's also what I've learned in school that it started as a committee or something for uh, the markets for coal and steel to to keep that even i guess yes yeah. exactly and that's really important if you think about the weapons and methods of war i mean coal and steel are the basis of really all heavy industry and a really big part of heavy industry is materials for war 
you need a lot of coal and steel to make tanks and to fuel your uh, trains, which ship your soldiers and your weapons, etc. Um, so this is extremely important if there's a system of monitoring and avoiding, um, you know, uh, just uncontrolled uh, warmongering that is rooted in uh, in these industries. Yeah, so it started with stealing coal. It started mainly between Germany and France, which even before the World War II, you know, for centuries have been at war with each other and um, mm -hmm. yeah. tensions were high and relations were not good post-World War II. Um, so it was, it started, uh, as far as I remember, just Germany and France. And then later on, we had uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg and Italy join. Then we move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. no, so I heard it really helped with um, the the peace between France and Germany that mm -hmm. they became uh, friends again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And then later on, so that was that was established in the, the European, I think, community of steel and coal or mm -hmm. steel and coal community, something along those lines, uh, was established in 1951. So not too long after the end of the war. And uh, a number of years later in 1958, we see an expanded version of this community, uh, both in terms of membership and in scope, in terms of which industries and um, uh, sort of uh, regulations are uh, in place in terms of commerce and industry. And uh, that establishes the European economic community. Mm -hmm. Like I said, that included four more members, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Italy. Beyond that, I'm a little bit less clear on the history, but... Fast forwarding, I mean, there's a lot of discussions going on about how we integrate energy policy, how we deal with atomic uh, atomic energy. Yeah, so uh, it, it really started actually out as a, as like for economic prosperity with yes. the, with the market of the coal and steel, and then and then it helped a lot with the peace, mm -hmm. and then also more discussion started about safety and nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, right? Yeah. Okay. And. Yeah. Um, I mean, prosperity and peace, the European Union as, as a project is a really good example of, of what we call in political science the uh, the trade peace theory. It's a very common theory that actually even has its roots in the Age of Enlightenment and French uh, philosophers in the 1700s. It's a very old idea, the basic idea being that if people trade and really bind each other together through trade, they're more likely to be peaceful to one another because they have oh, an interest yeah. in, if we take a silly example... If let's imagine a world without the EU and Germany and Sweden decide, let's form a trade union so that we can not tax each other's goods when we import them. The Germans have fun because they get cheaper Swedish meatballs and lingonberry jam. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> the Swedes get very happy because they get cheaper schnitzel and um, I don't know, bratwurst. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. everybody feels better and is happier with the uh, prosperity and greater choice provided by an integrated market. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the EU is really the first to do this sort of thing where we, we try to create something not just by as countries operating internationally next to each other, talking with each other, but actually building something above us that binds us together, a, like a supranational organization, It's it's which is kind of exciting because we're still watching it, you know, develop incrementally and seeing how this works. It's it's a process and uh, it's it's certainly one of a kind and the first of its kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how does uh, the EU integration now work? Because, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of talk about um, Turkey and all these very small uh, countries like Cyprus. Mm -hmm. How 
How is it now, you think? Mm. Um, I, I'm not really sure about the, the, the process of new members right now. I do remember that before, like at least five, maybe a bit five years ago, even before, I remember hearing a lot about, you know, is Turkey going to be the next member and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, relations have uh, stagnated between many European countries and, and Turkey. Um, people very critical of the Erdogan government. Um, yeah. And being, well, not exactly democratic. And that is very central to membership of, in the European Union is a lot of these things about democracy, respect of human rights and um, free elections and et cetera. Um, but the main problem with integration right now is it's not really worrying about integrating the market. The market's already integrated, right? Yeah. But yeah. making sure that we have the proper tools that this market is sustainable. For example, member states have to pay to fund the institutions of the EU, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about standardizing tax policy, for example, uh, across EU, com EU countries. Because if I'm in government A and I don't have very high or efficient Tax, a very high or efficient tax system, and there's a lot of untaxed wealth uh, just piling up in my country, I, as the government, don't have as much funds to support the EU in turn. So the EU has an interest in making sure that every government is funding the EU, you know, its fair share, so to say. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that yeah. is tied to the fact that people are taxed fairly. Uh, what fair means is is debatable, but that people are taxed fairly within the country and that the government has enough funds to support the the European project. Yeah. Yeah. So we've moved past this point where we're talking about integrating the market and, you know, abolishing tariffs and uh, making sure we have free trade and freedom of movement of goods, services, people and capital and making sure that we have the instruments that where this doesn't fall apart. I mean, for example, when we had the sovereign debt crisis in Greece, um, a lot of that had to do with, on the one hand, irresponsible public finance on the part of the government there was a lot of misrepresentation of the amount of debt that the greek government had yeah. um, on the other hand there was a lot of irresponsible lending um on the part of european bankers and creditors that were not really responsive to the risk that uh excessive lending to the greek government might have posed and this combination caused the, cri the crisis um so the we need to make sure that these things don't happen again that we have responsible public finance and tax systems work um or else we, you know, that destabilizes the value of the euro and the union itself. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or one of the main routes why we see people, you know, that are euro skeptic. They, yeah. you know, why are we in this? It's not really fair. Why is my my wealthy, prosperous, um, you know, stable country supporting this other country which can't, you know, get its shit together? So, uh, or whatever you want to, or whatever you want to describe the situation. This is um, to understand whether we can get past this this sort of debate. Let's think about just a country. Like if I have a welfare state and I'm rich and you're poor, but I have a strong enough sense of community and shared identity with you that I'm yeah. willing to uh, pay higher taxes, you know, on my excess wealth to make sure that you have access to health care and good education or whatever. Yeah. It really just comes down to a sense of community mm -hmm. and, and uh, connection with one another. If Europeans don't have that, then they will raise these criticisms. This isn't fair for my wealth to be redistributed to these poorer countries and then they might want to leave um which is complicated because the way that we people form identities is very it's slow it's kind of really arbitrary i mean uh, ideas of nationhood or, or whatever yeah. they're very arbitrary and to to sort of yeah. create something above 
your national identity that doesn't suppress your national identity so that I can be, in my experience, be a, a Texan, an American, and a, a citizen of the world. You know, there's sort of layers. Yeah. And if people feel like their national identity is threatened um, and that they can't, you know, layer, so to say, being British and European, and European. or German and European, yeah. Yeah. then uh, they're not willing to support these institutions. And yeah. that's why we saw, I mean, Brexit is one of the reasons. Brit yeah. British, if you yeah, look yeah. at polling historically, Brits uh, never really were sort of those Europeans to their bones, like uh, people in the Netherlands or Germany. If you ask people, what do you do you identify as uh, European? The polling numbers are much, much higher than they ever they were ever in the UK. So mm -hmm. it was always about 50% in the UK. And then when they had the referendum... About 50% wanted to leave and yeah, they yeah, left. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They didn't identify as Europeans. They didn't want to support Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we actually need... So nationalism, of course, proud for your country is good. But on top of that, you also need this feeling of, of community and, I guess, con continentalism or something yeah. with the, the European, mm -hmm. uh, the EU. Yeah. And okay. that's a process. I mean, Europeans that are younger are uh, tend to be more supportive of the EU than yeah. older generations. Yeah. And that's just, you know, it's a process of forming these identities. It's a generational process. Mm -hmm. And we we discuss and we connect and then we have children and they connect more and we build more institutions that bring us together more. And so it's um, it's slow, but it's uh, yeah. it seems to be working okay so far. Yeah, and yeah. I guess uh, the EU is also maybe quite young, so yeah. that's why it's still in, in progress. Yeah, we're working things out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for this uh, very clear clarification. Then we move on to another song. Boom. To have some time to reflect on what the EU is. Next stop, Gothenburg. We will arrive at K103 every Saturday at 1 p.m. Thank you for traveling with us. Welcome back. You're listening to Next Stop Gothenburg on K103. And uh, I'm Lika and I'm here with Morgan. We're talking about the European Union. And we've just explained a bit what the European Union, or Morgan has just explained what the European Union is and um, a short history and a bit about nationalism. And now uh, we want to talk a bit more about the advantages and disadvantages of the EU. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Advantages and disadvantages. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'll just sum up really quick at the beginning and say, in my humble opinion, there seem to be more advantages so far than disadvantages. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, although there are risks. Going back to... Let's start with advantages. Okay. So, starting where we left off, Europe, through a process of many decades, treaties, new memberships, dealing with ever greater... Uh, issues, has integrated its economy, um, built institutions that can regulate that political economy, and created the European Union we have today. To think about it very fundamentally, it gives people the freedom to move where they want. Uh, you, as a Dutch citizen, can find employment in Sweden yeah. if you want. You can move here without having to apply for a visa there's no visa sponsorship that your employer has to take up. It's it's a very easy process. You can move and live here yeah. without any dealing with any bureaucracy, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's quite open, which right. is really nice. Which yeah. is really nice. 
you not to say that you couldn't travel and study in Sweden right now if there was no EU, but it probably would have been much more complicated and there probably be much less students doing it. Yeah. Um, so as students, we have a huge advantage. Um, I mean, the Erasmus program is a is a an extension of that. The, the mm-hmm. European Union has organized an institution that encourages students to yeah to move mm-hmm. and yeah. um also the freedom of uh movement for goods and services which opens you up to not only access to like polish sausages and you know uh, good qual i don't know good quality vegetables from spain or whatever yeah, yeah, but it yeah. brings them to you at, at lower price than they otherwise would be with yeah. a tariff system um so it's it's better for you as a consumer it's better for you as a student um uh, as a traveler and this also this uh, kind of openness also uh, comes with a mixture of cultures yes which is really fun i think which is exciting for most yeah. people some people don't like to ever leave their hometown but many people like to see the mm-hmm. world yeah exactly and also of course i mean yeah you've have those uh, people that are maybe not that open to certain cultures or mm. immigrants but still um if you think about the types of food we eat uh not everybody only eats their nationalistic food there's always some kind of integration from uh yeah another country yeah i would almost be willing to say that many europeans uh younger europeans at least in my experience and in my observation they prefer you know indian curries and yeah. a a euro or a uh or a falafel or a donut yep. kebab over <laughs> some i don't know especially in northern europe it's a lot of just potatoes and yes, uh and uh, boring meat but yeah so uh, this yeah. is fun it's made our plates more exciting it's made our studies more exciting mm-hmm. it's made our wallets more secure and you know we spend less money on on goods tri- typically um some disadvantages disadvantages come mainly i hate to bring up the greek crisis again this is far past us but this is a great example of risks that can be involved because um and i don't want to get too technical in economics here but um when you have a country that has a sovereign debt crisis traditional economic theory says that you have if you have a monetary policy you, you know a country has a domain of their monetary policy they usually have their currency so before the eu the uh germany had the deutschmark yeah sweden still has the kronor but each country had its own currency the and when a country has control over its currency in the face of financial crisis um countries can inflate their currency which and reduce interest rates um and increase output of money they can print more money and this um essentially makes the sovereign debt less burdensome without getting into the mechanisms of why that happens it, it makes it easier now when greece faced its economic crisis it does not have monetary sovereign monetary policy. Yeah. It does not have its own currency. It uses the euro like nine I think it's 19 other states within the 27 member states of the EU. Mm-hmm. And so it had did not have that freedom to sort of cushion the fall of the crisis with its uh monetary policy. Yeah. So that is a risk and you can theorize like maybe if the if Greece was not in the EU and it uh was sovereign then it would have been it would have been better able to handle it through this mechanism. We can't be for certain, um, but this is um, one of those economic risks, you know, that your your the value of your currency is tied to the health of other economies. And if you remember when the when the Euro Greek debt crisis and then well the Euro crisis following that, it affected the value of the euro all over. I mean, in the Netherlands too, and Germany, yeah. and 
Um, so these countries had to bear the brunt of um, what was a financial crisis in neighboring states, which has its own impacts on consumers. You know, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, we said it's you have cheaper goods, you have access to more goods from other European countries. Um, but then, you know, if each member state is not operating in uh, responsibly in terms of public finance, it opens up the economy and consumers indirectly to um, some risks. Um, yeah. That's I don't know. That's like the biggest disadvantage I can think of and like the most like topical one after, uh, you know, develops developments over the past 10 or 15 years. I'm trying to think of other disadvantages. It's really hard to think of disadvantages. I mean, like, it's really a great project. (laughs) I got to say. So as an American, I came over here. One of the reasons I wanted to come and live and study in Europe is because I got tired of reading articles in the U.S. media about how great your institutions were and whether that's your healthcare systems or your your affordable education or whatever. And now that I've seen both systems with my both eyes, I'm telling you guys, it's working. Don't don't blow this thing up. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, not to say that all of that is because of the EU, but the EU is trying to ensure that that is a standard. Yeah, even yeah. in countries where that maybe they're still developing these systems. Um, that... Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, the healthcare systems are... Well, I would say quite different per country, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe you, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't. Compared to the U.S., they're very similar. I mean, if you okay, only yeah. look at Europe, yeah, you notice the differences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and in terms of like when and where you pay, it's different. But the amount of money you're spending at the end of the year doing your normal checkups and going to the doctor yeah. and maybe you get sick, it's uh, pretty comparable Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Related to in comparison to what I would pay in the U.S. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even going uh, in Germany, I had to I had to like buy an insurance plan. It was very affordable, and then so I had this insurance in in Germany. In Sweden, I have like this emergency plan where basically, like, if I get hit by a car, I'm covered. But other than that, I have to go to the doctor and pay. But even then, I've been to the doctor and the dentist here, and not having an insurance plan that covers these basic um, checkups paying full price, it's still cheaper than mm-hmm. what I would pay for the in the US with insurance. So um Yeah, yeah and also it, this is also different for European citizens because uh, me as a European citizen, I have this uh card which says I'm a European citizen and I have European healthcare or healthcare in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And then basically this card is um saying that you uh, get, or in Sweden, I get. I have to get the same healthcare right. as in the Netherlands uh, with my insurance I have in the Netherlands. Right. And yeah. that's, thanks for tying that back to the EU because I can't, you know, a lot of these countries had good healthcare systems before or like putting EU policy and uh, regulations aside, they were already good systems. But this is a huge advantage of the mm-hmm. EU. It's like you, yeah. not only is your system in your home country really good uh, in a global perspective, but if you travel to a different country to study or live or get married or travel or whatever and something happens, you are covered there as well with the same rights. Yeah. Um, same with my study loan. I have a study loan in the Netherlands for studying, which mm-hmm. is still continuing even though I'm studying in Sweden. Right. Which is, yeah, maybe also tied to also the EU and uh, its openness. Right. Maybe. Another advantage um, is relating to studies. So the EU has some of the best universities in in the world, some of the best research institutes, and some of the best research comes out of the EU. Um, And a lot of that you can 
tied to the fact that, again, freedom of movement of people, if experts on a very focused, whether it's a policy domain in political science or maybe uh, you study ecotoxicology, maybe there's yeah. researchers that focus on the same, you know, environmental problem, toxins in the ocean or whatever, um, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. from different countries, they can assemble without bureaucratic sludge and get to the country that they, to the institute that they want to work at, they can assemble like Avengers and take on these big problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's 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 great. I mean, it's also great for research in that sense and I, development of ideas and scientific innovation mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, yeah, and uh, monitoring as well. Mm. Because, um, for example, monitoring, I don't know, the... North Sea or the Baltic Sea mm -hmm. uh, by by Swedes or by Dutch people. It also helps the helps with I guess regulations and uh, monitoring uh, within within other places of the EU. Mm. They they can correlate some stuff to, uh, for example, uh, within Germany. Mm -hmm. So like environment, you mean like uh, environmental, environmental consequences in yeah, uh, consequences. impacts in. Yeah. Uh, in the North Sea, like countries yeah. can coordinate and collaborate on their research. Yeah. And yeah, see, exactly. Yeah. It's great. And then that's good for making sure that, uh, or at least we're trying to fish more sustainably in the North Sea. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we advantage, we advantage from more sustainable fishing because we ensure that fisheries are sustainable for uh, consumers in the long term. And so it's, it's just like this constant, it's this network of just benefits that kind of feed back into one another. And um, great. And it's great. I mean, yeah, the, the the one disadvantage I can really think of is like, yeah, you give up uh, your monetary policy. You you your your the power of your spending in your country is tied to the health of other economies, which can be risky. But again, yeah, the risks of that and the the problems that have arisen due to that risk have been an exception. They've been a very they've been an exception to the rule. And uh, as a general rule, the EU has, has worked out tremendously. And um, I I am hopeful and I hope to see where it goes. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you for this clarification. And then we move on to two more songs. And after this, we will talk about perhaps the future of the EU. What effect may Brexit and Corona have uh, Yeah, on the future? Yo, what's up, everybody? This is Circus. AKA Kid Zelda, the Neanderthal Elf, from the notorious and infamous Shapeshifters. You're listening to Student Radio, K103, Gothenburg. Yeah, boy. You have an hour in spare every Saturday between 5 and 6, then listen to the show about nothing on Gothenburg Student Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Next Up Gothenburg. I'm Lieke and I'm here with Morgan and we're talking about the European Union. And uh, now we want to talk a bit about the future. Like, Morgan, what effect do you think uh, the Brexit has had on, on the European Union? And, um, well, I know the Netherlands has also started to think about, well, we, uh, for example, this, um, what we talked about earlier, the monetary uh, freedom and uh, yeah, giving that up, be, uh, staying in the European Union. So the Netherlands are considering uh, staying in the EU, but withdrawing from the eurozone, not using the euro anymore. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. That's oh. not. No, no. Okay. But, um, about about. Uh, 
Oh, about how they about how um they support other countries. They're a wealthy more on the wealthy yes. side of countries, and they have to support. I see. Yes. Yeah, they support yes. the poor uh, member states. I yeah. see. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this is the big question, right? Uh, ever since Brexit, everybody's like, "Oh no, this is." And uh, people were looking at Brexit at the same time they were looking at the Trump election, and so mm-hmm. just. A taking of... this information in, there's a lot of like insecurity and anxiety and doubt about like, oh my gosh, or you know, maybe this progress of democracy and integration and everything is kind of you know backtracking, so to say. Um, but focusing on Europe, yeah, Brexit was uh, not well. It was kind of a shock to it was a shock to many people. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now people are whenever things happen, people always look back and they. They look at the evidence uh, that supports their conclusion that it was inevitable. So after it's happened, people look back and they're like, oh, well, this is inevitable. Like I said earlier about like if you look at polling, Brits never really identified as Europeans. But I'm only arguing that as a reason for why people left because it's happened. If it didn't happen, I wouldn't really care about those numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So it's interesting. But yes, um, it's it's a good reason for people to be a bit worried maybe but i will say i think a lot of the anxiety about the future of the eu is it's uh, a little bit unfounded because we i mean we're talking about a process of over 50 years i mean we talked we talked earlier the european and steel commission was formed in uh, 1951 yeah and from then on it was a gradual you know treaty after treaty process of further integration. So we're talking about a 50, actually, no, 60 or 70 year project. It's 2021 now. Mm-hmm. 70 year project, 27 member states, uh, 19 of which share the same currency on top of many other deals and organizations, you know, the Schengen area, which allows people to travel without borders. All of these things have come to pass amongst 27 countries in its maximum. And we're at this point where one has decided to leave. I don't think that we should be super concerned yet. I think especially if you look at in terms of su- support for the EU, generationally speaking, how younger people are more supportive and and engaged in yeah. European projects. They mm-hmm. travel, they go on Erasmus studies. There's actually a lot of Erasmus babies. Have you heard about this? A lot of people go on Erasmus, they get married, and they have, you know, you know, a, a French <laughs> no. a French person marries somebody from Slovenia wow. or a Pole marries a Swede. And there's it's a high, it's a high number. I'm not going to pull a number no, out of nowhere, but it's a lot of people, <laughs> couples, families that have started because of the Erasmus program, Damn, which no, is I part think... of the integration project. Yeah. People share. They form new identities. We're exactly. a European family, right? We're yeah. not a Polish family or a, or yeah. a British no, family. No, I've not heard this before. We were also talking yesterday about uh, immigration and um, getting a second... Uh, or double uh, passport and double nationalism. Uh, um, dual citizenship. Citizenship. Dual citizenship. Yep. Exactly. And um, then uh, Alex, my friend, pointed out that on your passport, it first says European Union and mm. under it, it says uh, Kingdom of the Netherlands. Right. So as first, you are actually, like uh, you said, a... Uh, European citizen. European citizen. Citizen of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like, younger people especially are way more supportive of the project. And um, not to say that, like, oh, in 10 years, you know, when all the older people kind of, you know, pass slowly and stop voting, then we're going to just ensure that it goes on forever. 
uh, and it's all going to be safe and whatever. Um, no, because inevitably cha new challenges will arise. Like there will be challenges in the future that we can't even think about. Um, or some of them we can think about. It's just a problem of like, how are we going to deal with them? I mean, the projections of uh, climate refugees uh, by, you know, in mid-century, it's, it's pretty high. Not to say that all of them are going to go to Europe. Many mm -hmm. of them will come from poor nations and uh, that are affected by climate catastrophe and catastrophes in South America, and they'll be yeah. heading more for the U.S. But these things will be problematic. How do we deal with this? Like security, uh, you know, whether we have border security or, you know, how do we welcome in immigrants? How many do we take? You know, these that's just one issue, immigration policy, that will continue to be a problem. But, I mean, the way that Europe has dealt with problems so far, it has a pretty good track record. I'm hopeful that I guess I guess the main thing I'm worried about right now is people there's a lot of voters that kind of they seem to like doubt in the eu or like they don't trust it or it's kind of mysterious to them right yeah, yeah so they yeah. think of it as like this weird alien thing that's kind of like in invading or like kind of take meddling with their country right and they don't yeah. really be, and this is important why we're talking this is why it's important we're talking about what is the eu and what it does because if people don't understand what it is and what it does and its benefits then they maintain this idea that it's this weird thing that you know, maybe has bad intentions or, yeah, um, and I think one of the, this is actually uh, a lot of people focusing on European Union right now in political science. This is an, a big discussion of like, how do we make people connect with the EU more? Um, some people talk about making it more like political people saying it's not political enough. What does that mean? Well, politics is like a negotiation of different interest groups and what they want right and they compete mm -hmm. and then they form coalitions to make things yeah. happen um that's politics so in that sense it's not political enough it's not competitive enough there's not enough at at risk in the political sphere institutionally the eu is very geared towards like making sure we stay in the middle yeah. of the spectrum um because if you look at the bodies of the eu the commission and the council make up that they consist of members of the cabinets and governments in each country yeah which typically are the center left or center right parties or they're included there somehow mm -hmm. um and so people that maybe they vote more left-wing or more right-wing or they're more concerned about immigration or they're more concerned about climate change or the environment more uh niche groups and sometimes extremist groups but you have to make them feel some sort of inclusion or else they get really mad and they get more support. Um, they don't really have an outlet in many of the institutions. The only one they have is the parliament. And the parliament relative to the council and the commission don't as much have as much power. So the really the decision making power is in the hands of typically the, the center. Center, yeah. It's the, it's the, um, the council, which consists of the heads of state. Um, and it's the commission, which um, is appointed by the count the i believe right they're appointed by the council um and then the parliament just approves so it's if we're not having if we're not really treating it in the same way we treat our parliaments on the national level where like we really can compete over ideas and there's not risk then people don't really have an interest in voting right because if it's always going to be the center and i don't really it's always going to be the status quo in the middle and I, it's never really going to move like i never feel at risk of losing that political power to people on the other side that i really disagree with and so by making it more political we can theoretically this is an argument that's been made drive up people that actually show up for european elections 
make people pay attention to European elections and EU politics more okay. because they have a stake in it. Yeah. I, 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 this is something I've read about. I kind of like the idea. I'm not an EU, like, this is not my focus in political science, but mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a discussion to be had because people don't show up for the EU elections like they do their national elections. They don't really no, pay attention to EU politics like they should. Very true. And no. I think that's, a, unless, unless they have an interest in paying attention more, it's still going to be this confusing thing mm-hmm. that seems, you know, meddling and, out of our control. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. And it be- needs to be felt like people are in control of it more. Yeah. So, yeah, make boost the power of the parliament. Maybe I don't. I don't know how this would do and work out in practicalities. Practicality, make the the parliament more powerful. It used to be really not powerful at all. It's slowly gotten more powerful. They've boosted its power, um, but that's like the direct voice mm-hmm. of European. That's yeah, the only yeah. institution in the EU that people vote directly. Ah, okay. And I think that's why people. They feel disillusioned because the decision-making powers in institutions that are not directly elected, they're indirectly elected or appointed by their governments. Yeah. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, what, how do you think, what effect do you think Corona might have? And um, because when Corona mm. first hit, uh, the first reaction of all the countries was straight away closed borders, which mm-hmm. is everybody reacted quite uh, nationally mm. and not um, not as a union you know mm-hmm. and and now with the vaccine rollout it's it's the opposite um, the EU handled uh, the European Union handled everything mm-hmm. and yeah what effect do you think this mm-hmm. might have had and will have on the future yeah yeah I remember when all the most European countries closed their borders and then, yeah. you know, there's a lot of discussion about what is this? I mean, what happened to the Schengen zone? Like, yeah. we agreed on this. Um, yeah. I, on the one hand, like, I, again, I don't focus too much on this. I don't really know if there's probably research being done now, but I don't know if border lockdowns were, like, really an effective measure, like a, like a central mm-hmm. uh, yeah. aspect of why countries were able to mitigate cases instinctually it doesn't seem like a dumb idea and on the other hand you can have you can imagine a country like having an outbreak in one region and sort of blocking off movement between yeah, one region exactly. and the other just as a precaution it doesn't mean that the state is in a is in crisis and people are going to secede mm-hmm. and join little groups and not you know return to normalcy yeah it just means that in the meantime we need to make sure each other are safe yeah and of course also the european union that it cannot have uh, eyes on everything what happens in every country right and uh yeah that the country reacted nationally is not uh necessarily a reflection on on the eu and how people think about the eu it's mm-hmm. also because i guess the parliament within the country they know better what's happening mm-hmm. maybe in their country and that's why maybe in the beginning it was good that everybody yeah kind of reacted nationally that Mm-hmm. per country and then now yeah with the vaccine uh there are some talks about um things opening back up more no about um uh countries thinking that oh if i d- if we did it uh, ourselves per uh-huh. country that uh, we would have go- gotten way more vaccine and uh way faster mm-hmm. everybody vaccinated mm-hmm. but uh, this is only of course true for the more rich, uh, the richer countries. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because the governments have to negotiate deals with these vaccine producers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of summing up lockdown, the the locking up of borders, um, 
I, I don't I don't think there was any I don't see like any long term consequence of that. Like I think it was a no. it was kind of a knee jerk response to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Things are slowly opening up. Um, I actually haven't really kept up because I haven't been traveling across borders within the EU. No. So I don't really know what the state is now. But I imagine that things have loosened up. Maybe you need certain papers or proof to travel a little bit more. But but we're on that way. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't think that countries are like considering maintaining hard borders or trying to, you know, uh, disintegrate the Schengen no, zone or anything. Definitely with some countries already started loosening up. Loosening yeah. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think that has had any long term consequence for the, for the union. But um, in terms of vaccine rollout. Yeah, I have heard of this. Uh, some, you know, some some governments have. I don't know exactly who, but I've, I've heard this discussed where some claim, well, maybe we could have done it better if we did it by ourselves. I don't know. But even if that was true, doing it alone is not good for it's not good for the EU because it, it I mean, if you imagine countries competing over deals with pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical companies producing mm-hmm. these vaccines. Yeah, that would cause a lot of resentment, I think, between countries. Because, you know, you'd have some that would come out on top and, they you know, oh, we've got 50 million doses for the first quarter. Oh, you got 5 million. Yeah, boo-hoo. And then people would get, you know, they would get angry. You know, what, why, why do you have any more right to the vaccines than I do? Going back to the EU, it's actually definitely or at least good for the European Union, mm-hmm. for the union feeling and... Uh, to do this communi- together. To do it yeah. together, to do it via the EU and not uh, per country yep. like a nationalist. Yeah, because yeah. people are tired. We've dealt with the pandemic for a long time. People are angry. They're anxious. You know, yeah. the economy slowed down. Absolutely. And this resentment on top of that would just be, I don't think it would be very good. Yeah. And yeah. now, of course, we still have some resentment from uh, like some of the richer countries saying, mm-hmm. uh, if I had done this myself, it would have been way more efficient and faster. But uh, this would, would not be maybe comparable to the the, the type of resentment that we'd have if we handled it per country. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, I think they're using in 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 pretty good shape. I mean, we have to we have to think hard. You know, don't abandon the project. Make sure you show up to the EU elections. Make sure you pay attention more. Talk to your with your friends. I don't know. Talk to your political science nerd friends about these things. Yeah, they yeah, have a yeah. lot to talk. They love to talk about these <laughs> things. Um, and just I don't know. Keep a spirit because um, I think if people pay attention and they try, we the EU will survive uh, uh, many issues that it faces yeah. as it has already. Yeah, it's been seventy years. We've done pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for this outro. This was Next Up Gothenburg with Lika and Morgan. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I know what you want me to say. My name is Paul Jenkins of the Blackheart Procession, and you're listening to K103. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.